0: I was so hopeful there when Pastor mentioned something about the accordion that he played. I had, uh, I had high hopes there. Uh, I thought maybe they had really prepared for revival and, and uh, he had learned the accordion. So anyway, take your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, it's a blessing to be here at Temple Baptist. I'm thankful for this place and for this church and the testimony of it for many, many years. And I thank the Lord for uh, the pastor here and Pastor Pittman's friendship to me and, and uh, just am grateful, grateful to the Lord. Uh, looking forward to a wonderful time that God's going to give us in his word. I'm thankful uh, that we get to spend this week together. As you're turning, I want to encourage you to do everything you can to be in your place. Just plan on being here in every service. Don't let anything keep you from coming. Uh, come uh, come, and be a part of these meetings. Uh, you, there are three goals that I'd like each one of us to have this week. Number one, that you would be in every service. Now, I don't know this this audience, I don't know everybody here, uh, but it's likely that there are some people here this morning, right now in Sunday school, that have never been through a whole week of revival meetings, and this would be a great week to do that. So let me encourage you to be a part of that. And just be in every service. Don't let anything keep you. I know there's a lot of crazy traffic in this part of the world, but just come on. If you have to come in a little late, you come on in a little late and just ask the Lord to really speak to your heart. And as Pastor mentioned, open your heart. Say, Lord, speak to me. So you be in every service. The second goal that I'd like each of us to have is I'd like each of us to, to, to try to get someone here. Now, this is a great opportunity that God's given to us, special nights, services continually. Uh, Most churches don't even have a Sunday night service, so this gives us an opportunity to have a Sunday night through Thursday night service successively. And uh, it's, I think, important that when you invite people, you em- emphasize that because it's hard for people even to get their minds around one service a week. You know, usually they're, they're kind of keen on two services a year, but once, uh, you know, uh, once a week, that's, that's a little much. And then three a week, well, that's even more. And now we have uh, five or six this week, so let's really ask the Lord to do something supernatural in using us to get folks to come to the service. I'm going to be preaching and I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to preach the word of God plainly and clearly and give people an opportunity to respond in every service. So you try to get someone here. Your presence is vital. Getting someone here, their presence is vital. But most importantly, I want us to have this as our number one priority to seek the presence of the Lord. That's number one. Now, when we say that, we don't mean that we deny his omnipresence. How many of you believe God is everywhere all the time? You believe that? I believe that. The Bible teaches that. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. God is everywhere. But, you know, sometimes we're not in tune to his presence as we ought to be. And uh, that's, that's not good. That's... that's uh, That's why we need revival. That's why we need the Lord to speak to our hearts and draw us to him. And uh, so it's not the Lord that we're wondering whether he's going to be here or not. But boy, when we start to pray and when we really start to posture our heart and we begin to listen and pay close attention, then all of a sudden we realize he has some specific truths that he wants to convey to us. And uh, it's kind of like a husband and wife. You know, the husband's not always there. Is that right, ladies? You know, he's there, but he's not always there. He's solving some problem from work, or he's trying to figure out some world dilemma and how he can fix it. And uh, my wife said to me one day, she said, honey, are you even listening? And I said, that's kind of a strange way to start a conversation, isn't it? And so, you know, just sometimes, sometimes, sometimes he's there, but he's not always there, right? And sometimes we're right here in the presence of the Lord, and he's right here with us. And yet we're taking him for granted. And revival is when we come back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry for not listening. I'm sorry for not paying attention. Speak to my heart. You have something for me. Help me, Lord, to pay close attention to what you have to say. I'm all ears. And whatever you say to me, I'll obey. And I believe the Lord will do a great work if we'll have those three goals and accomplish them this week. Father, we thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to meet this morning. Thank you for each one that's gathered here. Thank you so much for the honor that we have to open up the Bible. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you're going to do in every heart. I thank you for the way that you're going to weld families together where the devil has tried to fracture them. I thank you, Lord, for how you're going to draw people to yourself that perhaps have been standing aloof and uh, uh, afar off. I just pray, Lord Jesus that you would continue your work that you've already begun and that you are doing right here in this place. Lord, use each one of my brothers and sisters to get folks to the services. And I pray, Lord, that we'd see people saved this week and that hearts would turn to you for the first time and trust in you. And, Lord, we do pray that your manifest presence would be the number one feature in everything that's done and said and sung and prayed this week. And we'll thank you for what you do because we ask this in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. When I first uh, started in evangelism, we didn't have a trailer. We just started, I started, uh, I didn't even have a wife when I first started in evangelism. And uh, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary. I started in evangelism in 97, and we were married uh, about a year and some months later in October 3rd of 1998. And so uh, when I first started, we didn't, we didn't have a trailer. Then, then I got married, and we still didn't have a trailer for about, that was about a year and maybe three months or so that we didn't have a trailer. So we were really excited when we got our trailer, our first trailer. It was a 28-foot carry light. And there's a man in our church, in my home church that I grew up in up in Minnesota that uh, had offered it to me for several years. But he, he, uh, he he'd offered it to me. He bought it brand new truck and trailer Dodge 2500 28 foot carry light trailer and he took five trips with it and he had a stroke so he was really unable to to use it after that and he'd offered it to me when I first went into evangelism and I just wasn't able then he offered it to me when we got married and I really wanted to but I I just didn't feel like that was the right time then finally he offered me this truck and trailer and I was so excited we, we bought the truck and trailer, and we were going to have a meeting up in Connecticut. So we left at about 5 o'clock in the morning, and on our way to Connecticut, I thought 5 o'clock in the morning, we'll be in Connecticut by 5 o'clock this afternoon, no problem whatsoever. But I didn't take into account that when you pull a truck over mountains, it slows it down. And uh, when you start out, it's it's not as quick as if you're just in a free standing vehicle. And so we we got up there late that night, about 1 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were there Sunday to Sunday there in. In uh, Wallington, Connecticut And uh, we we were there At Lighthouse Baptist Church and And we got done and we hooked up and uh, all the people of the church gathered around wanting to see our new vehicle because we'd been at this church before. Ladies wanted to see inside, and Amber was glad to show them. All the men wanted to see my truck. All their guys are interested in that kind of thing. And uh, then my front landing leg on my trailer wouldn't go up all the way. The other one went all the way up, but the motor somehow inhibited it, so it couldn't go up all the way. And, um, and I said, wow, I, I don't know what's wrong. Well, all the guys in the church gathered around and they were diagnosing what was wrong. And so I get men diagnosing what was wrong. All the kids were running around the parking lot. The ladies were coming in and out of the trailer. And this is the, really the first time I had backed up truck to trailer and was going to pull out. My wife came over to the door and she said, she said uh, can I get you anything? I said, get these people out of here. I was so nervous. I was going to back over a kid. I didn't know what to do. And I was the first time and my landing leg wouldn't go up. And I didn't know what's going to happen now that my landing leg won't go up. By the way, it never went up the whole time. I owned, owned that trailer. The, the the easy part that you, mechan, you manually do, it did. But the other part, I just never figured it out. Well, we left that night and we drove through New York City and we came down into Delaware and we were coming down into Delaware to show my wife's Family, our new home. And we were so excited about this, just so excited. And as we come through New Work and down into Delaware, we were coming just north of Dover on one. And my wife looked in the mirror and she said, Are those sparks? And indeed there were. We had completely lost a wheel, not a tire, a wheel. It had sheared all the lug bolts and lug nuts completely off. There was no, no tire. I have four tires on this trailer. It was a, a double-axle trailer, and now I only have three wheels on this trailer. I, I don't, up to that point, I had never changed a tire. I said, what, what, what do I do? I don't know what to do. So I pulled off to the side and the shoulder, and I... And I slowly inched down the road, and wouldn't you know, a mile or so down the road, there was an RV dealership, and wouldn't you know, we were able to get in on Monday, and I was able to get a new wheel. I went back and found my wheel. If that had been in rush hour, it, it could have hurt, it could have killed somebody. How did that happen? Well, uh, we got it all figured out. Amber's uncle came and helped me get the new wheel on. It was good. And and uh, then we showed all of her family in Dover, Delaware, our new trailer. We were so excited, and then we wanted to go see some friends who were at the time living in Woodbridge, Virginia. So we drove over the Delaware Bridge, and, and we came over into Annapolis and down into the southern part of D.C. and down into Woodbridge. And uh, so now you've got a landing leg that doesn't work. I just lost a wheel. I'm coming down into this fancy neighborhood of Woodbridge, Virginia, and this is what people do or are doing. They're driving with a wide berth around me, slowing down, looking and just laughing. I said, what? What is wrong what, what is going on? I stopped the truck right there in the middle of traffic. It, it wasn't a highway. I stopped right in the middle of traffic, and I got out. Well, there's a seam that goes around the edge of a trailer to hold the fiberglass in, and then there's a rubber seal that goes in, and that rubber seal had worked its way out, and it was wagging like a tail on a dog behind it. I, Grabbed it all out, pulled it all out, threw it on the road, and got in the truck and went to my friend's house. Now, I came back, and I I got the rest of the seal, put it back in. But at that point, I thought to myself... What has Brother Comfort gotten me into? Brother Comfort was the guy that really trained me as an evangelist, and and he's the one that taught us to get a trailer. He said, life's better when you have a trailer. You can keep your family on the road. Boy, at this point, first trip, I mean, it's the second, really the second trip I've ever taken. What is going on? So I can tell you that as an evangelist, when you pull a trailer, there's two things you can do with a trailer. You can sell it or fix it. Those are the only two things you can do with a trailer. And sometimes when I'm in a camping world, and I see these great big pictures of a guy in shorts, and untucked shirt, he's flipping burgers out underneath his awning, I think, I'm going to sue them for false advertising. (laughs) So what, what I need to do is show a picture of me or one of my evangelist buddies changing a leaf spring on the side of the road with 18 wheelers flying right by. You know, it's really something. I can tell you, when you have a trailer, there are many times when you have had enough and I wonder if somebody came to the service this morning and life has so crumbled and and twisted and turned that at this particular juncture and moment in your life you've just about had enough well I want to speak to you in Sunday school on that very subject when you've had enough because there's a right way to respond and there's a wrong way to respond And in 1 Samuel 25, David is responding in the wrong way. Notice, please, the text, 1 Samuel 25 and verse 1. It says, And Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together, and lamented him, and buried him in his house at Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, just so that you understand the context here, in 1 Samuel 17, David has been, he killed Goliath. 1 Samuel 16 David was anointed king. 1 Samuel 17, he killed Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, David is made over Saul's men of war. 1 Samuel 18, David is given Saul's daughter in marriage. And from that moment forward in 1 Samuel 17, David's life would never be the same till the end of, chapter, uh, the end of 1 Samuel. He was anointed king by no, by no seeking of his own, and now he kills Goliath, and he becomes a national hero and a national figure, and he immediately becomes, comes under the ire of Saul and, and the jealousy and the envy of Saul. And from that moment forward in 1 Samuel 18, Saul eyed David, and he chased him. And though he was in David's court, and though he was over David's, over King Saul's men of war, he, he, he did everything he could to destroy his life. And so, so David has that. He has 600 men that are gathered around him who in the beginning were in debt, discontented, and discouraged. But those 600 men became some of David's mighty men. And then the Scripture tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 25 that Samuel dies. So this is not a high point in David's life. This is a low point. And you know all of us have some low points. Uh, It's not all beautiful plateaus. It's not all mountain peaks. There's some lows in our life. And how we handle ourselves and handle those situations and respond to God in those situations really reveals something about us, but it, it, it is greater than that. It's, it's so important that we respond rightly so that we can reflect purely upon the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 25, now Samuel has died. Verse 2, and there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance, but the man was curlish and evil in his doings. And he was of the house of Caleb. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal did shear his sheep. And David sent out ten young men, and David said unto the young men, Get you up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus shall ye say to him that liveth in prosperity, Peace be both to thee, and peace be to thine house, and peace be unto all that thou hast. And now I have heard that thou hast shears. now thy shepherds which were with us. We hurt them not, neither was there aught missing unto them, all the while they were in Carmel. Ask thy young men, and they will show thee. Wherefore, let thy young, the young men find favor in thine eyes, for we come in a good day. I pray thee, give, I pray thee whatsoever cometh to thine hand, and to thy servants, and to thy son, David." And when David's young men came, they spake to Nabal according to all these words, all those words in the name of David, and ceased. Now, it would have been right and proper for Nabal to oblige them. It would have been right and proper for Nabal to take care of them. In fact, a few hundred sheep would have been pocket change for Nabal. You'll find in just a moment that Nabal Nabal could have done so because he hosts a feast when he shears his sheep. It was typical that you would do something like this. And so now these men come, and they don't demand, they request. David had the responsibility with his, his mentor, Samuel, dying and, and with his life in upheaval and, and having to tuck his family away uh, so that they don't get destroyed by Saul and running from Saul and all of this turned upside down. Now he has the responsibility and weight of caring for these 600 men. He says, please, I'm your son. We are your servants. He requests. He requests. And it would have been proper. In fact, in Middle Eastern mindset and culture, it was proper to take care of those in your, in your, in your purview. Verse 10, it says, And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed from my shearers and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? So David's young men turned their way and went again and came and told him all those sayings. What does Nabal do in response to David's request? He hurls insults against David. He hurls spite against David. Now remember, David is running. David's life has been turned upside down. At this point, Saul has taken his wife... His daughter, David's wife, away from him and, and given him to marry another. So there's there's all kinds of trouble going on. He's just lost Samuel. He's got the burden of caring for these six hundred men, and in a kind and a respectful way he approaches Nabal. Could you spare some sheep to feed my men? And what does he get in return? Spite, hate, arrogance. And David breaks. Look what the Bible says in verse 13. And David said unto his men, Gird ye on every man his sword. And they girded on every man his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And there went up after David about 400 men and 200 abode by their stuff. Now make no mistake, David was a warrior. David knew how to kill. David killed hundreds and thousands of Philistines. He was an excellent marksman. Verse 14, but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master and he railed on them. But the men were very good unto us. And, and, and we were not hurt, neither missed we anything as long as we were conversant with them when we were in the fields. They were a wall unto us both by night and day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep now therefore know and consider what thou wilt do. For evil is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a son of Belial that a man cannot speak unto him. Now, I just want to say, men, that there's nothing virtuous about being unapproachable. There's nothing virtuous about being angry and haughty. There's nothing manly about it. In fact, it shows cowardice. It shows deep insecurity. There's nothing honorable about being like Nabal. He was curlish and evil in his doings. He was unapproachable. Somebody offered a request, and he turned him away in a fit of arrogance and rage and spite. There's nothing honorable about that, and certainly nothing Christian about it. Now David responds. David was a warrior. Make no mistake, he could exact vengeance, and David was certainly intending that, but it wasn't right. David, the man after God's own heart, David, the sweet songwriter of Israel, David, the one who had killed Goliath in a, in a, zeal, in a zeal that is, was matchless, David, David who, who had done great exploits for the Lord and who would sit on the throne of Israel one day, is now about to make a grave error. I want you to notice a few things about what to do when you've had enough. First of all, don't overreact. First and foremost, when you've had enough, don't overreact. I was talking to a, a godly pastor that I preached for recently, and and we went out to lunch afterwards. It was just a, a brief message in his chapel, and then we went out to lunch, and he said something that really has given me something to chew on. He said, Don't react. Don't react. Respond to God. In whatever situation that you're in, don't react to it. If you react, you'll be in the flesh. But if you respond to God in that situation, Lord, you knew this was to come. You knew that I would be facing this today. You knew that I was going to uh, be dealing with this. How would you like me to respond? Wow, that's a mouthful. And it fits in what we're saying. Don't overreact, it's easy to overreact. It's easy to, to do a pendulum swing in the opposite direction. A tit for tat. Oh, yeah, you did this to me. Well, let me show you what I can do. Uh, you treated me this way. Well, let me treat you this way. And pretty soon it digresses into a third grade playground spat or worse. Now, third graders die descending into a spat that's one thing. I had a sixth grade teacher named Mr. Engen, and he would sit on, stand on one side of the street while We played at recess, and if a couple guys got in a fight, he'd just watch. And, and if, he, if he decided that it was a little bit too aggressive, he was real tall, big old tall guy, and he'd walk over and real laid back. He'd grab one kid by the nap of the neck and grab the other kid, separate him, you know, if it had gotten a little out of hand. But he'd, for the most part, just watch. But, but uh, you know, our, our response uh, is not to be showing forth a sixth grade or third grade playground spat. We're, we're adults. Better yet, we're Christian adults, We're to be walking in the Spirit. We're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be walking in in His way, in His light. Don't overreact. It's easy for a wife to overreact to her husband. It's easy for a husband to overreact to his wife. It's easy sometimes for children to overreact to each other. Sometimes it's easy for children to overreact to their parents or parents to their children. If we're not careful, when we're in the midst of a conflict, we can overreact react and david was doing that right here oh yeah he's not going to spare a few hundred sheep well i'll show him i'll kill them all that would definitely be on the on the purview of overreacting. Verse number 18, Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two bottles of wine and five sheep ready dressed and five measures of parched corn and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on asses. And she said unto her servants, Go on before me, and behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. And it was so as she rode on the ass that she came down by the covert of the hill. And behold, David and the men came down against her, and she met them. Now David had said, "Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, of the uh, it, all that pertained to him, and he hath requited me evil for good. So and more also do God to the enemies of David. If I leave, if I leave of all that pertained to him by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall, and when David saw David, when Abigail saw David, she hasted and lighted off the ass and fell before David on her face and bowed herself to the ground and fell at his feet." Now I want you to see, number one, don't overreact. Number two, remember what you really deserve. When life piles in on you, when people mistreat you, when you're under the gun and, uh, and then some... When, when you've got bills to pay and you've got troubles to solve and you've got uh, family problems that you're working through and it seems like the rug just now is pulled out from underneath you, number one, don't overreact. Number two, remember what you really deserve. Did you see what he said? In verse number 21, he said, I, In vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness. And, and he says, And so that nothing was, was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he hath requited me evil for good. You see, our bitterness grows best in the ground of, 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 of a, an, a broken sense of justice. When we feel like justice has fallen in the streets, when we feel like justice has not been served, our broken sense of justice, and we all have a sense of justice, all of a sudden we have a right, right we have a reason to stand up and to fight, to, to, to defend, and, and, and there certainly is a right way to go about it, but the truth of the matter is this wasn't the right way. And many ways that we respond is not the right way. We, in fact, need to say, wait a second. Number one, I'm not going to overreact. Number two, I'm going to remember what I really deserve. He hath requited me evil for good. Why, all the work I do around this house, and my husband can't even acknowledge it. All the things I do for my wife, and my wife can't even acknowledge it. And boy, I'll tell you, she really mistreat me. I deserve better than this. Well, do you? Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, what you and I deserve is hell yesterday. Anything other than that is better than we deserve, including suffering, including mistreatment. You see, we think we deserve better. I, I, I've worked so hard to get to this point. I, I, I don't think that people should be talking to me that way, and mistreating me that way. Why, why don't they know who I am and don't they know what I've done and don't they know what I've accomplished? Well, the truth is all of us are guilty sinners. And if we got what we deserved, it wouldn't be pretty. It'd be torment. It'd be awful. That's what we really deserve. And when we think we deserve more than that, then we're thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So you watch someone that responds in a situation and doesn't overreact, all of a sudden you say, why, why are they not re- reacting in an in adverse way? It's because probably they remember what they really deserve. I don't deserve God's mercy. I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve the breath that he's giving me right now. I don't deserve anything but judgment for my wicked sin. And let me pause and say there, if you're here this morning and you've never been saved, all of us deserve judgment. Don't come to a church and think, well, just because some people look like they've got their life together, that, they've, that they somehow think they're better than anybody else. All of us deserve judgment. We've all broken God's law. Not once, but over and over and over again. But just for one breaking of the law, we deserve judgment. Whosoever shall offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And the law was given that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And the truth is, all of us deserve judgment. You see, that's not the way religion teaches teaches you religion teaches its on a merit system you have more merit than you have demerit and you'll get in and just make sure you just keep it that way i mean you're probably still going to make some mistakes and do some wrong things but just as long as you do more good than you do bad then 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 you should be okay in the end that's not the way god works god makes it plain that our bad is bad Is there anybody here that has a problem understanding or comprehending that our bad is bad? Is there anybody here that that, that doesn't understand that our lying and stealing and cheating and and pride and arrogance and rebellion and murder and hatred and all that, that's bad. Our bad is bad. We're all on the same page that our bad is bad. You know what God says? Our good is bad. You say, what? Uh-huh. He said, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Filthy rags, that's the kind of rag that you would wrap, uh, unwrap from, a, from a, a wound and a putrefying, oozing sore. That's the kind of description he, he uses to describe our righteousnesses, our good deeds. So God says not only is our bad bad, but our good is bad. You say, I can't see that. Well, you can't get to heaven until you do. Because if you can't see that, then you're not seeing it God's way. God says our good is bad. You know what Paul said? Paul said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was in Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law. A Pharisee concerning zeal, I persecuted the church, touching the righteousness which was in the law. I was blameless. Paul was like the seal team six of religion, at least the Jewish religion. He had it all together. You know what he said? He said, I count it, but dung. For those of you that live in the city and don't know what that is, that's a pile of Manure. In other words, Paul had to see himself for what God saw him as, and all his righteousnesses that he'd piled up, and all his credentials, and all his resume, he had to count it but dung, that he may win Christ. And he found in him, he said, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Jesus Christ. There's no way that you're going to come to Jesus until you see yourself as God sees you, a sinner. A sinner. You see, all of us are guilty sinners. All of us, because of that, deserve judgment. All of our bad is bad, and all of our good is bad. I remember years ago when 9 11 happened, seeing Yasser Arafat, the famous terrorist, going and giving blood for the victims of of New York City. And I thought, what a phony! What a fraud! He knows full well that he's been backing all of these people, and now he's acting all good. You know, sometimes we do good to help people look away from our bad. Sometimes we do good to pretend that we're not doing bad. Either way, it's either phony or fraud or deception. But you know, I don't have to worry about Yasser Arafat. My biggest concern is the guy I see in the mirror. And the truth is that if you've never seen yourself as God sees you in the mirror of God's word, God, I'm a guilty sinner. I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell. I don't get to heaven by my merit and my my good deeds. I am in a bad way. I need a savior, and I want Jesus to be my savior. You need to do that today. So number one, don't overreact. Number two, remember what you really deserve. Look at what the Bible says. Abigail falls on her face at his feet in verse 24 and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me, let this iniquity be. And let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience and hear the words of thine handmaid. Let not, my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial, even Nabal, even Nabal, for as his name is, so is he, Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord whom thou didst send. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, seeing the Lord hath withholden thee from coming to shed blood and from avenging thyself with thine own hand, now let mine, let thine enemies and they that seek evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now this blessing which thine handmaid hath brought unto my my Lord, let it even be given unto the young men that follow my Lord. I pray thee forgive the trespass of thine handmaid, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord fighteth the battles of the Lord, and evil hath not been found in thee all his days. It's amazing Nabel didn't know, quote unquote, who David was, but she sure was familiar with him. Verse number, th- verse number 29, yet a man is risen to pursue thee, she's speaking of Saul, and to seek thy soul, but the soul of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord thy God and the souls of thine enemies, them shall he sling out as out of the middle of a sling. She sure used some good metaphors there, she knew who he was. Verse 30, and it shall come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel, that this shall be no grief grief unto thee, nor offense of heart unto my Lord, either that thou hast shed blood causeless, or that my Lord hath avenged himself. But when the Lord shall have dealt well with my Lord, then remember thine handmaid. Number three, don't overreact. Remember what you really deserve and let someone point out your blind spots. Do you have anyone in your life that you allow to point out your blind spots? You better. You better have some people close to you, whether they're saved or not, whether they're close to you or not. You better have some people that will point out blind spots, and you better allow it. I remember when we first were married, we had an Oldsmobile Bravada, a white Oldsmobile Bravada. We'd be driving down the road, and... and. Uh, <clears throat> For some reason, my wife would get a little nervous that I was drifting into the lane to the side of me, and uh, and I'd be drifting into that lane, or maybe I would be giving my tires on my right side a massage with the rumble strip, and and uh, she'd be a little nervous, and and usually at the very first she'd respond something like this. Ah! And I would overcorrect, and I would pull the vehicle over this way, and then I would have to go back over this way and get up on a couple wheels and just about go out into the ditch and, and clear the traffic for, for hundreds of yards. And, uh, and finally, when I got all four wheels back on the, the, the asphalt, I said, what was that about? She said, you were drifting into the right lane. I, I said, honey, we can't do that. I said, if we do that, we're not going to live to see our 25th year. I said, you can't, you can't do that. I said, you've got to do something else. I don't know what it is, but you, you can't do that. You're going to scare the daylights out of me. So now she, she kind of does this. Ah, woo, ah, like that, you know. Uh, Most of the white hair that my wife has, I don't think she has any, but most of it is because of me, not because of my kids. And I've got scars all up and down my right arm from where she's reached over and grabbed me. Uh, You men know exactly what I'm talking about. But you know, uh, now I don't need my wife. Now, I do need you, honey. I, I don't need my wife because you know why? I've got little orange triangle lights that show on my mirrors whenever anybody's in my blind spot. You know what I'm talking about? So, so now I've got someone uh, digitally to point out my blind spots, but you know, I need someone to point out my blind spots. I, I don't see everything. And if I think I do see everything, well then, then why do I need God? The truth of the matter is is I need to let someone point out my blind spots. Maybe it'll be a close friend, maybe it'll be a pastor. You do need a pastor. Maybe it'll be someone else. You do need to let someone point out your blind spots. And this is stunning because this was a a woman, and, and excuse me, ladies, but they weren't necessarily always thought as deep counselors in the Bible. And yet David allowed her to speak, and David allowed her to point out his wrong. Look at verse number 20, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which has sent thee this day to meet me. And blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou which thou hast kept, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood and from avenging myself with mine own hand. For in very deed as the Lord God of Israel liveth, which hath kept me back from hurting thee, except thou hast hasted and come to meet thee. Surely there had not been left unto Nabal by the morning light any that pisseth against the wall. So David received of her hand that which she had brought him and said unto her, Go up in peace to thine house. See, I have hearkened to thy voice and have accepted thy person. Are you ready? When, when you've had enough, don't overreact. Remember what you really deserve. Allow someone to point out your blind spots. Watch this now. Have enough sense to change course. You see, it's not just okay that you, someone points out your blind spot. You need to have enough sense to change course. Maybe you've heard about the ship that was plowing at night through the foggy seas. and A battleship's radar suddenly indicated an object directly in its path. The ship's captain sent a radio signal, we are on a collision course, advise you to change course 10 degrees north. And a response crackled over the radio negative, we advise you to change course 10 degrees south. The captain was... Livid, he sent out a blinking light from the approaching object. He saw it, and he was perturbed, and in a bellowing reply, he said, I am a ship's captain. Change course 10 degrees north now. The response came back, I am a seaman, second class. Advise that you change 10 degrees south now to avoid imminent collision. The captain became furious, and he blurted out another command. He said, this is a battleship. Change your course immediately. And the reply came back. This is a lighthouse. (laughs) You see, at some point, you better change course. The collision isn't going to be a a monument. There's not going to be a monument there to to hail your virtue. It's not just enough to have someone point out your blind spots. You better get back in your lane. Do you see? And watch the amazing ending of this. Look at verse number 36. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore, she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about 10 days after that the Lord smote Nabal, that he died. What should you do when you've had enough? Well, number one, you should not overreact. Don't overreact. Number two, remember what you really deserve. And if you, by faith, have never come to Jesus, today would be the day that you need to acknowledge your sin and what you really deserve and cry out to Christ and ask Him to save you. Number three, let someone point out your blind spots. Number four, have enough sense to change course. And number five, and finally, let God settle the matter. You know, i found that the Lord can fight my battles a much better job than I can. He can do a much better job in solving my situation and solving my problems than I can. Most of the time, I botch it up. But when I allow the Lord to solve the problem, it's solved in a right way. My dad said to me as I was growing up, son, if you will let God take vengeance, he'll do a much better job than you. And when God takes vengeance, the person that he does so against, when it's all said and done, the only thing you'll have left to do is pity them. Let God settle the matter. God can solve it much better than you can. And when he does, he gets all the glory. I don't know if you're here this morning and you've had enough, but if you have, don't respond like David started to. Respond like David ended. Lord, would you help us? With all the problems and difficulties and stresses upon our life, it's very easy for us to take matters into our own hands. And usually, when we do, we just mess things up. Lord, help us to realize that eternity is at stake. Help us to realize we're not dealing with nuts and bolts and, and charts and computer graphs, we're dealing with lives. And help us to respond to you, not react to our situation. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.